Warning, this episode will include mentions and or discussions of physical and verbal abuse, violence, death including by murder, childbirth, and slavery. Hello everyone, welcome to the KAR Recap. I'm your host, Kristen Rhoda. I am an English and music student who loves discovering, reading, and exploring old and new works of literature, television, and film. This podcast is partnered with my Instagram blog, KAR. After two to three weeks of reading the chosen novel, I discuss the plot, the background, the characters, and certain themes and other literary devices that stuck out to me. So if you enjoyed the work, or even if you didn't like it, let's just talk. If you haven't read the book, please know that this episode contains spoilers. Remember, I'm just as curious as you are, so there's no right or wrong here, just learning and some healthy discussion. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. In this episode, we will be discussing what is, in my opinion, a very underrated classic. We're talking about Mr. Mark Twain's Puddinghead Wilson and Those Extraordinary Twins. Now, these are actually two books, but we're only talking about the first book, Puddinghead Wilson. Don't fret, though. The twins are still important in the story, and therefore, I'll still mention them. But let's talk about the talent behind this novel first. Mark Twain's birth name was Samuel Langhorn Clemens. He was born in 1835 in Missouri, where the events of this novel go down. He was of Cornish, English, and Scots-Irish descent. During his time, slavery was legal in Missouri, and his family was a slaveholding family. He would later include this theme in his work. After his father died in 1851, he quit school and worked as a printer's apprentice, and then a comedy writer for the Hannibal Journal, and then a printer in several cities, including St. Louis and Philadelphia. He started to write and publish his own works as well. These popular works include The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and The Gilded Age. Oh, and I bet you're wondering how he got his pen name. Well, it's actually a Mississippi River term. Literally, the words Mark Twain are a measurement, meaning two fathoms, which is just 12 feet. This indicated a safe death for steamboats. However, most scholars believe the name Mark Twain indicates life along the Mississippi River, a thing that always pops up in his writing. Hey, speaking of writing... Let's get into this book, shall we? And buckle up, because this is about to be the longest, most complicated plot summary yet. So, like I said, Mark Twain grew up in a slave-holding family. Memories of seeing slaves in childhood were very influential as he matured. At first, he didn't see any problem with slavery when he was just a boy. When he was older, he served in a Confederate militia for two weeks and quit. He claimed he didn't know what he signed up for. But that didn't stop some people during that time, and even more people today, from not only questioning this claim, but also side-eyeing him for it. I have to admit that I also side-eye him sometimes for different reasons, including the heavily over-exaggerated AAVE in his dialogue, but I digress. Twain had several conversations with abolitionists, including his father-in-law. In the 1870s, Twain started feeling embarrassed about his indifference and his failure to challenge the racist and white supremacist society he was raised in. He actually recalled a moment from his childhood when he saw 12 black men and women, 
chained together and said to be sold down the river. He said of them, they had the saddest faces I ever saw. So slavery and abolition became very important themes in his novels. Puddinghead Wilson was published in 1894, but it's actually set before the Civil War in a small town in Missouri called Dawson's Landing. Now, I'm gonna need y'all to buckle up because there's a lot of characters Twain throws at you in the beginning of the story. If you need some pen and paper, press pause and go get some. Okay, everybody ready? Listen closely. First, we have Judge Driscoll. He's about 40 years old, a descendant of the first families of Virginia, and he's very proud of it. He was objectively a gentleman and very hospitable. He was a free thinker, and according to Twain, being a gentleman without stain was his only religion. He and his wife were generally happy, but they just wished they had kids. Next, we've got Pembroke Howard, a lawyer, a bachelor, and Judge Driscoll's best friend. He's also about 40 and a descendant of the first families. He is also very gentlemanlike, according to Twain, a Presbyterian, and all-around well-liked, but he is very confrontational. Next is Mr. Driscoll, the judge's little brother. He and his wife had many children, but unfortunately, sickness cut all of their lives short. But later, he becomes the father of two more, and that's where our next two characters come in. Roxana is one of Mr. Driscoll's slaves, to whom one of his new children was born. Roxy is actually only 1 16th black, but you know how it is in One Drop America, so that's why she's a slave. Her child with Mr. Driscoll's is named Belle de Chambre, or Chambers for short. The other child, born to Mr. Driscoll and his wife, goes by Tom Driscoll. Roxy cares for both of the boys, but we'll get to these three later. The last character you need to know is David Wilson, a lawyer who just flew to town from New York. He sets up shop in Dawson's Landing, but within one day of living there, his reputation is already ruined by a joke he made. The joke was about a dog barking so loud it became a disturbance. Jokingly, he said that if he owned just half of that dog, he would kill his half. Unfortunately for Wilson, nobody in his town seems to know what sarcasm is. So his joke spread around town, and he becomes known as a fool. That's how he got the nickname Puddinhead Wilson. His career as a lawyer consequently struggles, but he deals with it by performing other services while practicing palmistry and collecting fingerprints. Okay, everybody got it? Great. <laughs> There's a few more characters to come, but these are the main ones you need to know. Now, let's get into the story. So Roxy is nursing both Tom and Chambers. A little bit later, there's a theft in a Driscoll household. And all the slaves except for Roxy are guilty. Mr. Driscoll threatens to sell everyone down the river if he doesn't get a confession. Eventually, the ones that stole from him did confess, and they were just sold locally. But Roxy was so afraid of being sold down the river that she considered jumping into the river with her child. But then she realized something. Both of the baby boys she was caring for were so light-skinned that they could pass for twins. So she gets the idea to switch them. So from that point, her child was known as Tom and the other known as Chambers. I'll try my best to make this less confusing. <laughs> Sometime after the switch, Mr. Driscoll passes away. As the boys were growing, fake Tom turned out to be an absolute devil to Roxy and to the real Tom, who was going by Chambers, and has been raised as a slave. Fake Tom treats real Tom like a human punching bag and he takes charge over Roxy as her master. She eventually starts to greatly resent him. Later, Tom goes to live with Judge Driscoll. When fake Tom turns 19, he goes to Yale. When he realizes that he is not the big shot he thought he was, he drops out and returns to Dawson's Landing. Upon his return, Roxy, who was freed after Mr. Driscoll's death, 
thinks that fake Tom, having improved his manners a little bit at least, will remember her as his nurse and greet her warmly. And at least he'll lend her a dollar, right? But no. Instead, he proves himself to be the same old spoiled brat he has always been. But little does he know that Roxy gained some information about fake Tom from the real Tom. Apparently, fake Tom has been gambling, and his debt led to him being cut from Judge Driscoll's will. Even though the judge later changes his mind, Roxy uses this to get some sweet, sweet revenge. When she reveals to fake Tom what she knows, and tells him she knows more, he gets on his knees and swears to do whatever she says. So she tells him to give her the dollar, and then some, and to meet her in secret. During their secret meeting, Roxy reveals to fake Tom that he and the real Tom were switched at birth, meaning that he is the one with African-American heritage, and that he would have been enslaved if not for Roxy. This news is a colossal blow to fake Tom's ego, and he knows immediately that if Roxy were to tell the judge, he could be sold up the river. So he keeps putting on the front, all the while paying Roxy hush money every month. Things start to go south for everyone when fake Tom starts making some rash decisions. Not only has he now been spilling out of desperation for money, but he causes even more problems. See, there was a certain pair of Italian-born twins that were staying in Dawson's Landing named Luigi and Angelo Capello. Because of their noble status, these former sideshow performers became a huge spectacle in the town. Well, fake Tom meets them while they were talking with Puddinghead Wilson. Wilson takes all of their fingerprints. When Wilson reads Luigi's palm, it is revealed that he killed a man in the past. This upsets fake Tom, and he even insults Luigi, but immediately takes the comment back and apologizes. Later, the twins attend an anti-temperance event, and fake Tom follows them, drinks a little too much, and embarrasses the twins in front of everyone, and starts a huge mess. Luigi kicks fake Tom's butt, like literally kicks his butt, and sends him flying into the crowd. And then a riot starts, and then a fire. It's a huge mess. When the judge hears of this, he is furious with fake Tom. He demands that he challenges Luigi in a duel, but fake Tom refuses, and the judge almost disinherits him again. But the judge decides to duel Luigi himself, and once again restores fake Tom as his heir. Meanwhile, word has gotten out about the robberies, but no one knows who the burglar is. Fake Tom once again puts on a front and pretends that he has been robbed too. But later, when he goes to sell his stolen goods in St. Louis, he actually gets robbed. So when Roxy finds out, she suggests that fake Tom sell her locally and buy her back in a year. Instead, he sells her down the river to a plantation owner in Arkansas. Oh yeah, things are going good for fake Tom. Roxy's off his back, no one knows his secret, and he's got his revenge on those twins by revealing his past murder and causing them the mayoral election. Just to let you know, Wilson won the election. And the best part is, if Roxy comes back, he'll be ready. The only problem is that Roxy, once again, outsmarts fake Tom. After escaping from Arkansas, she shows up in the bedroom where fake Tom is staying in St. Louis, and she has more than had it with this nonsense. She tells him that he had better buy her back by giving her owner the rest of his money and begging the judge for the rest of what she owes. And if he doesn't, she'll reveal his true identity and it's up the river. But fake Tom never listens. Instead of begging for the money, he decides to steal it. But the judge wakes up during his attempt, and fake Tom stabs him with the knife he stole from the twins and kills him. He returns to St. Louis after the deed, and he later reads the paper and finds that one of the twins has been accused of the murder. But the twins swear that they only discovered the judge. Now, it's up to Puddinghead Wilson to find out who the real killer is. Long story short, because I've made this summary long enough, the twins are put on trial. But Wilson remembers that he took fingerprints from the twins 
and from Fake Tom. So when he finds that the fingerprints belong to Fake Tom, he reveals it in court. And he also reveals that Roxy switched Tom and Chambers, meaning that Fake Tom is Chambers, and that he is actually a small percentage black. So at the end, Luigi and Angel have had enough of all this mess and they head back to Europe. Pudinhead Wilson becomes a hero and proves that he is actually not a fool. Roxy spends a lot of time in church trying to atone for her guilt. The real Tom inherits everything from the judge, but is very unhappy now due to not feeling right among white society and being unable to return to his original environment. As for the real Chambers, he is thrown into jail with a life sentence. But when Mr. Driss calls creditors here of all this mess, they say, not so fast. According to them, they were not fully compensated, but would have been had Chambers already been sold. As a matter of fact, the murder would not have happened had Chambers been sold. So Chambers is released from prison and sold down the river. Wow, and I thought last episode's plot summary was a lot. Well, I'll remind you that classic literature is messy, but let's go ahead and get right into this analysis. Since the plot summary was so long, I'm only going to talk about two themes for now. So first, let's talk about irony and humor. Now, if there's anything you're going to find in Mark Twain's literature, it's irony and humor. And when I say humor, I don't mean that it's always funny. I mean, most of the events in the plot were obviously very dark. I mean, we've got slavery, we've got dark secrets, um, murder. So how is it that Twain can make this book so humorous? First, we can look at Mr. Wilson's arrival. According to his calendar, which ends up foreshadowing a lot of the story's events, people will ridicule you for anything. Take a listen to what he says on page five. There is no character, howsoever good and fine, but it can be destroyed by ridicule. Howsoever poor and witless. Observe the donkey, for instance. His character is about perfect. He is a choice of spirit among all the humbler animals. And yet see what ridicule has brought him to. Instead of feeling complimented when we are called a donkey, we are left in doubt. There was really no reason for anyone to think of Mr. Wilson as a puddin'head. He was very smart, full of wisdom, educated, and he had just earned a degree in law. The people of Dawson's Landing couldn't recognize sarcasm, and they spent so much time overanalyzing Mr. Wilson's comment. Really, you could call them fools. But unfortunately, it was Mr. Wilson's reputation that was ruined. Another example of irony, more specifically poetic irony, is demonstrated by none other than Chambers, you know, the fake Tom. When he and the real Tom were only teens, fake Tom tried to force his rival to fight young boys, but was angry with him and even stabbed him with his pocket knife for being afraid. But later in the story, fake Tom immediately took back his insult to Luigi when he got the slightest idea it would have caused trouble. Plus, he was too chicken to challenge him to a duel. That's not a coincidence, folks. Then there's the part where he pretended to be robbed and then the same night he actually got robbed. Also, when fake Tom was being sold down the river, he honestly had that karma coming for how he betrayed Roxana by selling her down the river. And speaking of karma, let's talk about lies and secrets. Fake Tom turned out to be really good at lying and putting on a front. I mean, it's not surprising. His whole life was a lie. When Roxana switched Tom and Chambers as babies, she did it to save her son. But she ended up regretting it sooner than she thought she would. Because of all that power fake Tom had, he turned out not only to be a cruel person, but also a liar, a thief, and ultimately a fraud of a man. 
Yikes. Even after fake Tom murdered the judge, he still put on a show to save himself. But it was hard to do so when he was the killer. Just listen to this excerpt on page 121 at the end of chapter 19. Everybody was pitying Tom. He looked so quiet and sorrowful, but seemed to feel his great loss so deeply. He was playing a part, but it was not all a part. The picture of his alleged uncle, as he had last seen him, was before him in the dark pretty frequently, when he was awake and called again in his dreams when he was asleep. He wouldn't go into the room where the tragedy had happened. This charmed the doting Mrs. Pratt, who realized now, as she had never done before, she said, what a sensitive and delicate nature her darling had, and how he adored his poor uncle. What a performance, buddy. Now take this excerpt and the fact that no one suspected Tom because he was a coward and call that dramatic irony. No one else may know it yet, but we the audience know that he is not a darling. He is neither sensitive or delicate and his cowardly nature is what caused him to kill the judge. Now back to the themes of lies and secrets. Fake Tom put on an act to save us behind, but he ate at him so much that when the truth of his deed and his identity came out in court, all he could do was faint. But that's what a deed that greatly horrific can do to you. The guilt will eat at you until there's eventually nothing left. And that's exactly what happened to Chambers. He ended up with no power, no high status, and no one's respect. This is a great work by Mark Twain, and I would love to keep discussing it. But that's all the time I have for this episode. Thank you for listening. There are obviously spoilers in this episode, but if you would still like to read the novel for yourself, I encourage you to. Also, feel free to visit my blog, follow me, and share your thoughts on things that I didn't touch on. My handle is at k.a.r.blog on Instagram. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the KAR Recap. Subscribe to this podcast so that new episodes will automatically be downloaded to your device. Take care and see you next time. Thank you.